Good morrow to you all. You have fallen on bad times. Brought to you by Royal Holloway's Shakespeare Society. You join me, Cassie Dixon. And me, Jack Hardman, as we bear some bardy truths. Hello everyone and welcome back to Bard Times. I'm Cassie Dixon, I'll be your host for today and I am very happy to welcome to the podcast the current president of Royal Holloway Shakespeare Society, Dominic Breen. Welcome to the podcast today. Hello Cassie, it's lovely to be here. (laughs) It's lovely to have you. So today's episode is all about the propaganda surrounding Shakespeare's work and also the political legacy that it's left on modern societies. Now I know that you are very invested in politics, both academically and in your daily life. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say today. But to start off, thinking back to the late 16th century, early 17th century, what was the political climate like in the time that Shakespeare was writing? So it was at the sort of end of the middle to the end of the Elizabethan era to the beginning of the reign of James the Sixth of Scotland, First of England. Um, and it was a period after which the, previously there had been a lot of upheaval. Um, we had the... Um, English Reformation had sort of just ended, really, and the that period of upheaval had sort of just started to stabilise. Mm-hmm. England had its second female monarch, um, who was a very power, you know, perceived as a very powerful figure. It was a time where, you know, what was sort of needed within the political climate was that a bit of stability. Mm-hmm. So there was definitely a, a need for a surge in propaganda, but. Putting Shakespeare aside for one moment, what types of propaganda were circulating back then? So the main sort of um, areas of propaganda, um, both during the Elizabethan era but before that, were things like histories. For example, this predates Shakespeare by quite a lot, but um, Thomas More's histories of England. Um, there were also things like um, very basic but drawings and posters and things like that. It's very hard when you read up a history to discern the difference between propaganda and history. Yeah. The famous speech that um, Elizabeth I made during the Spanish Armada, in all likelihood she didn't actually say that. It was utilised as a form of propaganda. So you can definitely see the, the correlation between propaganda and arts and the primitive forms of media that were used back then. Um, no different from today, really. But... What do you think about the arts being used for a political agenda that is not of the artist's own doing? So the politics and propaganda would have been most likely commissioned by a higher power for a certain purpose, and it's not just art for art's sake. You have to remember that at the end of the day, um, Shakespeare was a playwright um, who needed to appeal to what you know his audience, and in all likelihood, you know, as well as obviously the common popular masses, people with agendas or needs to sort of assert their authority and that's why you know sort of Shakespeare was incredibly useful for people like Elizabeth I because obviously he did reach the popular masses as well as aristocrats. And you're no doubt familiar with a lot of the propaganda techniques used by today's politicians but what about the techniques that Shakespeare used? Are there any examples that stand out to you in his work in particular? Um, So um, I think the best example is um, Richard III, which of course was, you know, is a proper, it's a propaganda piece 
to effectively historically slander a former English monarch um, who was deposed by Elizabeth I's grandfather, Henry VII. What I think is interesting about Richard III is that it uses exaggeration, it uses things like the character's physical appearance is exaggerated, the character's um, machinations and villainy are all exaggerated to the point where they're, I think, by modern standards, they, they almost resemble a pantomime villain. Yeah. <laughs> if we judge it by modern standards, it's, it comes across as caricature. But by Elizabethan standards, where, you know, it wasn't that long ago, but people don't, obviously didn't remember Richard III, it felt credible, it felt believable. And also people like having a villain to boo. Yeah. <laughs> and I think with those techniques of exaggeration and slander, you can definitely see it in play in today's media as well. And I think the question then I have to ask you next is, has propaganda actually changed that much over the centuries? And if not, why do you think that is? It's really not changed that much because um, if you compare something like Richard III to Battleship Potemkin, um, really there's not much different in how they are expressing themselves. It's very expressive, it's very dramatic, mm -hmm. because propaganda is inherently trying to get a point across and it's trying to attract an audience's attention, and the best way to do that is in ways that are punchy and engaging. So, yeah, I don't think it's... I think in terms of its sort of underlying approach, the only thing that's really changed is how what, what medium it takes. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely evolved over the centuries as we have evolved with it. Um, in some cases, then, do you think that Shakespeare's work was simply an example of spinning to make the current monarchs or their predecessors even look good? Or do you think it's more complex than I that? I don't think it's to make them look good, per se. I, I think it's a, a little bit more complicated than that, in that the goal of sort of Elizabethan Shakespearean propaganda is not just to make them look good, it's that you have to remember that prior to Henry the Seventh, there had been a number of wars and conflicts over who the reigning monarch should be. Mm -hmm. It was not a period of stability. If I remember rightly, my memory on this is a bit rusty, but um, Elizabeth I didn't particularly respond well to Richard II because it depicted a monarch being overthrown. Mm -hmm. The purpose of Shakespearean propaganda is not just to make the ruling powers feel good, it's to make the ruling powers feel secure in their positions because at the end of the day they were operating in a period of time where England wasn't that stable uh, politically. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Um, I think going on from that you can then break Shakespeare's plays down into three main categories. You've got the, the comedies, the tragedies and then the histories and he did write quite a lot of histories and besides perhaps the Henry IV and Henry V, they're not very well circulated today, especially in schools. So why do you think Shakespeare wrote so many histories, and especially ones that even followed the chronological order of succession? I think mainly because, fundamentally, he did think they were interesting and worth telling, but also because, because it then tells a story. I use the word A rather than the because it's not objective. Um, we've already mentioned Richard III is a major propaganda piece, as is um, Henry V. And this is, this is not new because in the 1920s the 
Conservative Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin adopted a similar strategy of telling a story of England. Um, but the fact that they follow the chronological order, I think, is mainly to sort of... This is mainly speculation on my part, but I think it's partly to create a sort of a canonical history in the same mm. way that you write when you write down the history, you write it down in order, or wrote it down in order to sort of legitimise it as a flowing story through narrative um, rather than just X thing happened, but X thing happened here and X thing happened here, you know. So they weren't really truly quote unquote histories then. And I think that's, that's, that is very plain to see. And if they happen to have been written and put on uh, in a film format today, I think there would be a lot of angry reviewers saying this is historically inaccurate, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so why do you think Shakespeare took such creative license with the histories? Shakespeare was not a scholar of history. It should be noted um, that Shakespeare was very much one of those people who was an artist rather than a scholar. I think, um, I think in some places, Shakespeare's knowledge of history is clearly as strong as Shakespeare's knowledge of geography. <laughs> but I also think that fundamentally, you know, Shakespeare would have been influenced by the writings of people like Thomas Moore. Yeah who were very clearly pro-Tudor. So I think, whether wittingly or unwittingly, Shakespeare's creative licences were written from the point of view of a pro-Tudor lens. What did it mean for artists other than Shakespeare, including Shakespeare, producing work under the reigns of Elizabeth I and James I? Do you think their work did have to comply somewhat with certain ideologies of the state? I think, to some extent, yes. I think... It should be remembered, we're not talking about um, modern constitutional monarchs, we're talking about people with absolute power. Yeah. And, you know, some of them were more liberal than others when it came to dissent. You, you know, at the end of the day, you have to sort of be careful what you wrote and said. For example, a lot of 17th and 16th and 17th century plays are quite... Um, have incredibly dodgy racial politics because that was the the cultural norm and that was a cultural norm that was enforced by the fact that England was a very for example was still undergoing a lot of religious tension mm -hmm. and you don't want to sort of undermine that at any points yeah i i think that that's all definitely worth worth noting i think looking at the more obscure histories the one that stands out to me the most is perhaps Henry VIII. Um, it's most well known, I guess, these days for being the play that's responsible for the original globe burning down in, in 1613. But politically, it's also quite interesting and contradictory. Um, it's generally thought of being written after the death of Elizabeth I, so after 1603, but that would mean it would have been performed during James I's reign. Now, this is interesting, especially considering how Anne Boleyn and the christening of Elizabeth I were handled. Both the coronation and the christening seem to be described quite lavishly, and even the subject of Anne Boleyn's head, uh, beheading was avoided, and the play ends on the christening of Elizabeth. And correct me if I'm wrong, but James I didn't like Elizabeth. Is that right? It's complicated. Um, <laughs> as much as James I may not have liked Elizabeth, James, um, Elizabeth was incredibly important to James I's rise. 
as well as being Elizabeth's closest living relative at the time of her death, and thus her only possible successor, he was also the second consecutive Protestant monarch. There, there was that fundamental thing of they were still part of the same religious reformation. Yeah, I, I, I was wondering when I was reading it, it did sound like he wanted to appease the masses. When did you say it was roughly written? Was it just after? Um, there's no actual date attached to it, but uh, scholars are generally in consensus to it being written between 1603 and 1613 when it was first recorded to have been performed. Okay, so that would have been literally just after. I think that might be the other thing is then... I think it's more paying tribute. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way of looking at it. Um, so, moving on a little bit to consider the effects on modern day societies, I think one of the most prominent examples of Shakespeare's plays that I think has had a more noticeable effect on us, politically speaking, is Richard III. And I know you've mentioned uh, Richard III briefly before, but I just want to go into it a, a bit more detail now. Um, I think it goes without saying, as you said, this is covering everything from his appearance and the implications there, uh, all the way down to his ability to reign as a monarch. Um, so how did Shakespeare use propaganda exactly to present Richard III in the way that he did? It is all well documented that in all likelihood, Richard III did have some form of mild deformity of the spine, probably nothing more than scoliosis. Um, so. The first thing, you know, sort of that most comes out most obviously is the fact that Richard of Gloucester slash Richard III is heavily deformed because it was a, it was very commonly believed that if you were physically deformed or not very appealing to look at, you were immediately a bad person. A lot of events that happened in Richard III either didn't happen or probably didn't happen. I think the other thing that is quite interesting to note about Richard III, though, is the fact that throughout the play he is talking to the audience. It's interesting because that enables the audience within the propaganda piece to see the two-faced, almost propaganda-like techniques that the character of Richard III uses. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think regardless of how Richard III actually was as a reigning monarch, Shakespeare definitely did him dirty. You know, there, there's no other example of a, of a monarch in one of his plays, I think, that has been exaggerated to that extent, you know? Um, so, referring back to what you mentioned briefly in your answer there, how exactly has Shakespeare's use of propaganda in Richard III helped to emphasise the damaging link between villainy and disability? Firstly, I think something I think is quite interesting to note is that autocratic figures have always been a bit insecure about their uh, physical shortcomings. But I think part of that would comes from the fact that I think deformities of that nature are sort of collectively seen as both signs of either evil or weakness. A, you know, a lot of people do, you know, still cover up their disability is because it's sort of it's even if it's they're not consciously thinking it, it's seen as a bad thing. And because it's a bad thing, it must be hidden. You know, fundamentally, um, it's played into things like the ideas of um, eugenics yeah. in particular. Definitely. Recently, the Daily Mail reported on a 
study into Richard III's genomes um, in the hope of sort of uncovering, as the Daily Mail put it, um, could a royal mystery about to be unravelled, DNA testing on remains of Richard III, could finally tell if he really was an evil king. You know, there's all that sort of weird pseudo-scientific thing of you can tell if someone's evil, but not by their actions, but by their appearance or by their DNA. Yeah. And I think Richard III, the play, does perpetuate that for disabled people. Definitely. And as modern societies, I think we've been conditioned throughout the centuries to have this one image of what disability is, which is very damaging to people who have hidden disabilities, for example, because then in in the eyes of, of mainstream communities, they're not validated. But I think Richard III definitely has some some form to play in that, in our preconceived notions of what disability is. Um, and considering the long-lasting and ultimately damaging effect propaganda can have, just how has Shakespeare's take on Richard III affected our modern perceptions of the monarch? I think it's key to remember that we have started finally to move on to a more, if not positive, at least sympathetic outlook on Richard III. But I think for a long time it did sort of leave in this na- this nasty impression that Richard III is this evil historical figure. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. And... Moving on from from Richard III now, I think another play that has arguably taken on more meaning in recent years, um, especially when it comes to the fine line between patriotism and nationalism, is Henry V. So what do you think it is about Henry V that speaks to people today? The thing about Henry V is that it's about a young, this young charismatic monarch, whom obviously in Shakespeare's day had already appeared in two plays prior to that as a young arrogant prince who grows up, you know, it becomes an arching story. Uh, But in isolation itself, Henry V um, is about a great king Mm -hmm. and who inspires his troops into battle. The Laurence Olivier adaptation of Henry V was made during World War II and was used to, although Henry V obviously is about a war with the French um, and, of course, during World War II, we were allies with the French, but it was sort of used to inspire people to sort of fight for England's greatness. Whereas, it, to compare that to something like the Kenneth Branagh, Henry V, uh, which has a very different approach, mm-hmm. although we have the glorious St. Crispin's Day speech, the actual battle itself is not portrayed as particularly glorious or pleasant. Which I think speaks to the fact that Kenneth Branagh's Henry V was made in the either late 80s or early 90s, I can't remember. So that would have been after, you know, a number of conflicts um, in the Falklands in the the mid-80s. But, you know, it's sort of that historical context of, you know, where attitude to war has fundamentally changed. It was a lot of smaller conflicts that Britain and America had just sort of gotten involved with and they were just not very it was just I think that's why the battle itself in that the 1980s Henry V is so unpleasant Mm -hmm. I think Henry V the play though I think is again used for a similar effect because it was written in um, at a time 
when England was very much at on and off conflict with Catholic Spain. And I think the intention with Henry V was to remind people, not necessarily to encourage people to join the army, but to sort of encourage people to be patriotic and I'd say nationalistic. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I absolutely agree with what you're saying. And the, the figure of Henry V in the play is almost presented as this underdog despite being king you know rising through the angst rising to the occasion and and leading the nation to glorious victory and i think considering that the most notice notable productions that you've you've just mentioned there the olivier and the brenner version it seems to me that the most noticeable uh noteworthy versions of henry v have cropped up in times of you know great political instability almost like you know that's that's what we need that's what the nation needs at that at that time so i think there's an interesting correlation there that i haven't actually thought about and and what you just said there crops it up so that that's i think that's food for thought um but talking about the the figure of henry v do you think the historical figure of Henry V would have had the same impact on contemporary studies of patriotism if Shakespeare's play hadn't existed? I'm I'm not entirely sure because the Battle of Agincourt, if you actually look at it, was not an exceptionally glorious battle. Yeah. <laughs> I think it should also be noted, though, this is more from the historical point of view, Henry V actually died quite young. He was only 35 when he died from, um, of all things, dysentery. It's one of those historical figures where people only remember the Battle of Agincourt with Henry V. Again, I think the play does just sort of just stick in the memory a bit better than anything else. I think that's that's definitely a good point that you raised there about um, about only one significant event really being attributed to Henry V or what we think about initially. Um, but then moving on, just just to wrap up overall. How impactful have Shakespeare's plays been in terms of how we view certain historical figures? I think it depends on the historical figure. Mm -hmm. I think it would be unreasonable to say that Shakespeare's Henry VIII has influenced our perception of Henry VIII. Mm -hmm. I think it would also be unreasonable to claim that, um, and I think it would be unfair to label all the blame for how we perceive Richard III at Shakespeare's doorstep, as I mentioned. Um, writers like Thomas More were already sort of starting the sort of metaphorical hatchet job. I think though the thing that Shakespeare did was bring that all to the popular masses and it has, whether, in sub whether consciously or subconsciously, it has stuck. What I think is interesting to note though is that Richard III instead has become the how we portray villainy. I think that's where Richard the, the play Richard III has more influence. Mm -hmm. Whereas Henry V, I think it does sort of it does stick in our mind that Henry V was this great king who beat the French. I think another example, sorry, I've um, just remembered this. Of course, is our perceptions of Julius Caesar. Mm, yeah. um, obviously. Shakespeare was working with a little bit, you know, he has a bit more leeway in terms of what he can say about Julius Caesar because Julius Caesar was long dead by the time Shakespeare was writing. But I think what's interesting to note is that the play Julius Caesar is very, again, I think I bring it back to this sort of notion of stability, is very much don't plot to assassinate 
people <laughs> authority. And again, the most famous bit of Julius Caesar is obviously, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears, which is a use of rhetoric. It's the finest piece of political rhetoric written in a play. And I think that's quite interesting to note, is that one of the tools that was used in Julius Caesar was a very early example of rhetoric, which is the basis for all political speaking. Definitely, yeah. And and besides Shakespeare, do you think there have been any other playwrights or artists who have had the same kind of impact on modern societies? That's an interest. That's a tricky one, I think. It, it's a big question. It's a big one because yeah. I think my gut instinct would be say yes, but no. Mm-hmm. Because the only examples I can think of are much more recent. The yeah. problem with much more recent is we don't know if that's going to stick. Shakespeare has stuck where I think a lot of artists, either contemporary to Shakespeare or contemporary to us, will struggle. Mm. And I think that's why I, I would be careful to assert for definite yes or no. What I can say, though, is that although Shakespeare was an early example of propaganda, the techniques have kept evolving and changing, and I, I think it will continue to do so. Um, but I don't think there's anyone who has quite the legacy yet of Shakespeare. I think also, though, it should be noted that whereas Shakespeare's plays aren't necessarily accepted as fact anymore, a lot of propaganda is incredibly... People are very careful about it. Yeah. Propaganda is, uh, you know, it's an, a tool that is used by people to get a point across and I think people are very careful not to sort of get sucked in mm. whereas with Shakespeare's plays you're allowed to get sucked in because every one who's been portrayed is dead and we now un- we understand the historical context a bit better yeah so I'm I'm not sure is my honest answer no that, that's understandable I think I'm, I'm with you on that answer as well and perhaps it's a question to be raised in a couple of centuries' time when considering the, the playwrights and artists of, of this time. But, um, yeah, I, I think that's that's all about what we have time for today. But I want to say a big thank you for coming on the podcast, Mr. President. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no worries. And uh, thank you to everyone else who's listened at home today. This has been Cassie Dixon. Stay safe. And in the words of the Bard himself... What, you egg? 